If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from historian Maggie Andrews, whose latest book is Widows, Poverty, Power and Politics, co-written with Janice Lomas. From campaigning for women's suffrage to their struggles to survive in the face of poverty or isolation, Maggie explores how the picture of widows in history is about much more than just mourning. Putting the questions to her was our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So we're we're talking today about your new book written with Dr. Janice Lomas. Uh, it's on widows who have historically been seen in a in a very one dimensional way, perhaps as, as figures of pity or in need of charitable help or even um, cartoonishly sexually voracious. Um, can we start talking perhaps by about the drive behind this book? Yes, it was very fascinating. We were exploring for the centenary in 2018 all sorts of women involved in the suffrage. And at a certain point, we became very aware that all of the three leaders of the main suffrage parties, um, suffrage organisations, as you might call them, Mrs. Pankhurst, Mrs. Fawcett, Charlotte Despard, they were all widows. And we thought about it. We thought this is not coincidental. And the more you investigate it, the more you realise it isn't at all. They were women who had some financial security. It might have been very minimal. Mrs. Pankhurst was arguably the poorest of the three, but the other, they had some financial security. They had respectability. They were married women. They, two of them had, one of them had children in in terms of Mrs. Pankhurst. The other two didn't. And um, that meant that they had a sort of status and a place in society without being ridiculed or seen as harrogans or um, scary, frustrated spinsters in the way that some of the single women who wanted to get involved in the suffrage were. They also um, didn't have quite the same domestic responsibilities and expectations on them. There was a bit of freedom from that. Um, And that, I think, enabled them to operate in quite a different way. They were people who were in charge of their homes and their households. They had responsibility. And the the widows were always seen as quite the forefront of the argument as to why women couldn't have suffrage. Um, Because they're running a household, they're responsible for their money, they're doing all the things that responsible men who are allowed to vote can, and yet somehow they, they couldn't vote. And all the arguments about letting women vote will bring dis- domestic disharmony doesn't apply to widows. So widows are ideologically and in practical terms right at the, at the heart of the suffrage movement. So from that, we then worked out and began to think, actually, what were the opportunities as well as the traumas and difficulties um, of widows in a very much a man's world of the past? And the more you dig, the more fascinating it is. Um, the number of the early MPs, congressmen um, in Britain, in the States, but also in Ireland, who were widows. They, in a sense, 
took over their husbands' seats in Parliament. Um, the most fascinating of which is is, is Maggie Wintringham, undeniably, whose um, husband dies in 1921, just a year after he's been, ele- been elected to Parliament. And they get her to take over the seat. And it's a very nice bit of spin, really, by the Liberal Party. They think that if she presents herself in black, she doesn't speak at any of the election campaigns. She just sits there in her widow's weeds looking very sad about things. Um, And um, she's seen as associated with her husband and all the sort of positivity there is around him as a local businessman and MP. There's a lot of sympathy towards her. But she's got a name locally. She's been on the council. She's done lots of suffrage work and so forth. Um, and they think, and they're quite right, that she will bring in the women's vote. So she she hits on both both tacks. Because once she gets into Parliament, she behaves quite differently. She actually, you know, does start to speak and campaigns very strongly on a number of things, including, of course, benefits for widows and um, issues around women who are you know, suffering the financial problems of being a widow at the time. So there are quite a range of them, and you discover it in America. Um, likewise, you know, the first widow in the house, the first woman who becomes the senator is someone who takes over her husband's seat. When he um, he dies and the party think, mm, it'll be just fine, we'll just let her do it for a couple of years, give her a pension. And two years later, uh, Hattie Carraway refuses to stand down and she gets elected twice more and she becomes very much the sort of widow as the senator from Arkansas, uh, all dressed in black, but also with exciting red nail varnish. So I think she's a bit (laughs) naughty as well. (laughs) Quite an educated woman who really goes for it, uh, you know, and, and has that respectability, can't be attacked in the way that single women could. I think in the 19th century, as the, as the, as the beginnings of the suffrage movement emerge, people are, 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 always counteracting the debates that there are and the the criticisms there are of letting women vote. And one of the strong ones is that if you let women vote, there'll be disharmony in households. And so there are attempts, first of all, to get widows to be allowed to vote and to get some single women to be allowed to vote. Now, there's a sort of interesting twist around that because in some sort of local elections, by accident, women seem to have slipped in to (laughs) to being able to vote in the middle of the 19th century. And then as it moves its way forward, they argue very strongly that, you know, what is important, many of the suffrage organisations feel, is just to break that assumption that voting is only male. And first of all, women are able to vote in local elections, and that moves forward from the sort of end of the 19th century. But they think, come on, give the vote to give the vote to widows. Um, they're running their households. They're in charge of the finance. They're paying rates. They're paying taxes. And that sort of whole essence of, you know, if you're paying taxes, like in the Magna Carta, you should be allowed to vote. That's all in there. Um, and so it does become a very important way forward. But also, I think it's that there is so much criticism of the suffrage movement as somehow being about... Um, Uh, single women who can't get a man, about harrigans. Um, They are caricatured. There's a lot of very vicious um, anti-suffrage postcards and propaganda that goes out at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. And into that, you know, as a counterpoint to that, you have, you know, Mrs. Fawcett, this very respectable um, widow who has, you know, dresses very carefully in black. She looks the part of absolute respectability. 
And she campaigns, you know, runs the biggest women's suffrage society, National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies. And everything about her is about respectability and about not being able to be criticised. She doesn't support violence. She's very, very careful how she behaves. And that's a real counterpoint to this sort of sense of, you know, the Harrigan and the horrendous um, suffrage campaigner. Um, even Mrs. Pankhurst, who, you know, is very careful to present herself. I think it's interesting the way her daughters are involved in the campaign. She's seen as a mother and a widow. And again, that helps that respectability, despite the fact that the ways she's behaving in some respects are not respectable. <laughs> and the organisation she's leading, certainly in the early 20th century, is not respectable. It's, it's uh, you know, firebombing buildings, it's setting light to post offices, it's doing all sorts of things that are not considered acceptable. But she and her family present a sense of respectability in there in a way that I think if it had been a single woman, uh, and there were many single women in the suffrage campaigns, if it had been a single woman, they would have been so much more open to criticism than she was. And Charlotte Despard, who leads the, um, the, the other suffrage society, um, she is absolutely fascinating because she's actually very wealthy. Her husband her, had been um, uh, very big in, in what is now the HSBC Bank, <laughs> so the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, and um, she is left very well off. And she starts by doing philanthropic work and starts by being encouraged to do this work to get her out of the horror and the sorrow of her widowhood. And then she slowly but steadily gets into more and more uh, suffrage campaigning but, you know, runs the Women's Freedom League, which has um, got a whole range of different people in it. But again, she always presents herself as a widow. She's, she's dressed in slightly bizarre clothes at times, but usually as black, and she is in, you know, very black, long, flowing clothes. She is known as this, um, the widow. She's got this tragedy behind her of not having had any children, having lost her husband, and um, being able financially, because she's uh, she's well off, to support the suffrage organisation and to not have to be worried about criticism externally, uh, to do what she thinks is is correct and right. And it's very interesting how she's able to be very very influential on that basis. Mm. Uh, yeah, I'd love to talk about that notion of respectability and some of the social conventions, um, perhaps in a little in a little bit. But um, that notion of uh, economic progress—you've talked about the women who played uh, obviously a large part in the women's movements of Victorian era, Edwardian era. But there was also um, this this change with women who'd lost their husbands and were just facing immense economic hardship and just, you know, it wasn't so much assuming their husband's seats or whatever, but just becoming the main breadwinner and fighting for survival. And what were the economic and the social implications of that, of women stepping in, you know, directly into men's roles as the breadwinner? That really varied according to, according to class and according to the sort of lives that their husbands had been leading. So, it's harder to find working class women the further you go back in into history and ordinary women. But still, we can really see the huge struggle some women just had to survive because the assumption was that, that men were the breadwinner, men were the businessmen, men ran it. Now, that doesn't mean that women didn't step in. And you do find women stepping in and running apothecaries and, um, and all sorts of different shops, indeed, a big nail uh, producer in the in the black countries, so they do take on that role, and again they have to run uh, the business 
uh, surrounded by men, work with men working for them often. And they find that some of them quite challenging and some of them really rise to it and do very well in it. The poorer women, it is it is much more of a problem. Uh, and you find them having to be very, very resourceful. Um, some of them you will, will rely on charity. Some of them find that they have to go into charitable institutions. Uh, so you discover them, you know, going into um, hospitals or convents or what have you, as this looks like their only option forward. Um, a lot in the 19th century take on roles like becoming housekeepers or um, governesses. And even after the Second World War, you can find a lot of war widows applying to be housekeepers as this is a way of putting a roof over their head, um, as well as, as earning. Um, so you find them sort of struggling their way around, often doing three or four different jobs, often doing jobs that they can work from from home. So there's a lot of spinning and weaving um, and those sorts of jobs in the, in the beginning of the sort of um, 18th century. Uh, and a lot of sewing. There's terrible descriptions in the 19th century by the, the social commentator Henry Mayhew, who interviews some poverty-stricken women who are uh, literally... Uh, you know, living in one room and sewing piece, on piecework rates, hundreds and hundreds of, of shirts, even when they're, you know, sitting up in bed after they've just had a child as a result of, of, of their marriage. So, you know, for some, the level of poverty is extreme. Uh, for some, it opens up economic opportunities. Uh, and some, I have to say, play every economic possibility that they can. So, you know, uh, and good for them. So everything from applying to two different charities uh, so that they will get, get assistance from them to, back in the 17th century, letting people think of them as a witch, even though they, they, they were not at all, because that was a way of sort of pressurising your neighbours into supporting you and not upsetting you. So they were very resourceful, I think I would say, in order to support their families. The other thing that's quite interesting is, of course, we forget back in the sort of 17th, 18th century, and even the 19th century, that a lot of men's jobs were linked to their housing. So that, you know, if you were married to a farm labourer, you would be in a tight cottage and you would lose that. If you were in a farm, rented farm, you might lose that as a result of your husband dying. Some women were allowed to go on renting the farms, but it was unusual. And then a whole group that I was quite shocked by were those who were married to clergymen. Um, because they, of course, lived in the vicarage. And you would think of all groups, they were going to be okay and looked after. But actually, some of them, you know, with numerous children, discover that they absolutely have nowhere to live at the end of it. Um, others, you know, who are wealthier, it would be because the family house was being passed on to the next generation. And you get that, you know, in Jane Austen novels, and you get it very much in people's everyday lives when they discover they are homeless as a result of being uh, widows. Mm. So, so we're clearly talking about, um, uh, you've written about a huge range of women, a huge range of classes, opportunities, etc. But I think, um, I hope it's not too much of an obvious point to make that this was a huge uh, range of demographics as well, like age-wise and the changing nature of marriage with, you know, younger women being married to very old, much older men. They were widowed at much younger ages. Uh, and I just found that so fascinating that, that we're talking about a huge sweep of ages in this book. We are really talking about a huge sweep of ages. I mean, quite right. Some women married, it sounds terrible, but almost with the expectation of being widowed because their husband was so much older than them. But of course, the rate of death 
was very different if you go back into the sort of 19th century and the 18th century beforehand. So people were widowed, often quite young. And for many of those younger widows, the expectation and perhaps the rational approach uh, was to, to, to hunt out a new husband. <laughs> that, was, that was their approach to life. you know. And some of them did it several times very successfully, Bess of Hardwick um, being the most, most extreme of it, who became you know, the second wealthiest woman in the country after Elizabeth I by a series of really quite carefully done um, marriages. Um, but yeah, for some, they could find themselves widowed very young um, and widowed very young with young children. And that, that in a sense, w- w- was the challenge. The, the single woman had one set of challenges, but those with young children had another set. And um, some of them were going to look to many years of one trying to bring up the children first, but trying to financially survive one way or another. And I think that goes on, I would say, well into the 20th century as well. Um, The big significance about the 20th century is the introduction of some financial safety nets for widows. Uh, First of all, with the war widows' pensions introduced during the First World War. Um, And then in 1925, perhaps because of a consequence of having got war widows' pensions and also because of a consequence of seeing the number of women who were widowed very soon after the First World War, of course, the Spanish flu kills a quarter of a million people in this country. And there are a lot of widows there, some who've been soldiers, but have been discharged, some who've um, worked in munitions all through the war, but many people who contributed to the war effort. And because their husbands weren't in the forces when they died, they're destitute. And so in 1925, you get finally the introduction of a war widow's pension. It's not a generous one, but at least it is a pension. But it is only paid if you've got a suitable number of of insurance payments beforehand, what is now national insurance. And again, you find widows absolutely destitute. I mean, Kathleen Dyers, who in the the 1920s discovers she's widowed with three small children in Birmingham. And actually, as she tries to struggle on bits of uh, sort of charity and uh, very minimal payments from um, from the government, she ends up putting her three children temporarily into Dr. Bernardo's homes um, and not getting them out again for some eight years because Bernardo's closes, moves the home, them to a home in another part of the country. So it's not as far back as we think, if that makes sense. Um, and very many widows, you know, after both the First and the Second World War, if they didn't remarry, which a lot of them did, um, are, are living on very, very minimal um, incomes and finding that quite a struggle for many years. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And so I think that that fear of the badly behaved widow is, and, the, and the voracious widow from literature is, is sitting there. Um, interestingly, when you hit the 20th century and the 21st century, some people have turned that on its head and, and enjoyed turning that on its head. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. So can we talk a bit more about those no, that notion of um, respectability and the societal norms that have have um, been you know expected of widows um, across this range that you're talking about the number of rights or um, things that dictate their behaviour their their dress and what happens perhaps with any transgression of those expectations? Yes, it is fascinating that there is a series even now of expectations of how a widow will behave, um, and that how she will behave is a reflection on her husband. So if you go back to the sort of 15th, 16th century, there was an encouragement by some families to get a widow to take a vow of, of celibacy, that that was it. She was, you know, either going to go into a nunnery or certainly live almost as if she was a nun outside one. Um, there was a sense that, you know, she shouldn't have, uh, particularly, I think I would say, um, from the Catholic Church rather than the, 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 the nonconformist churches and then the, the Church of England that developed, that she wouldn't have another husband. Um, the 19th century brings the cult of what we now see as sort of um, widowhood in terms of, um, you know, two years of wearing black and, and widow's weeds as we see it and the great veils that came down. That was very much a 19th century thing. Um, but they were shrouded by the sense that they should respectable, be respectable, and if not, they were dishonouring the husband that they'd been married to. Um, now, of course, you know, uh, then as now, women don't necessarily keep to this. Um, Lady Holland, who'd been married to the to the Liberal MP at the beginning of the, the 19th century, horrified her family by, within a couple of months, having dinner parties and a riot, and it ended up antagonised from all her family. I think there is a notion of how they should behave and how people did behave, which was very, very different. Um, but I also think that there was a different sense of marriage. Marriage was also about uh, much more of an economic relationship, if you look back. Not always, but 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 that was a, a key element, if you look back in the 18th and 19th century. So to many, it was about what women did to financially survive and if they didn't need to financially survive then they should find themselves you know because they were trust funds or inherited money then they should find themselves good works appropriate for being a, a widow they should do philanthropic work they should help women's education like lucy gavendish they should do something that looked appropriate not too risky and, and honoring their husband's names but that economic necessity underlay it all so someone getting remarried would be seen as probably an economic decision, which often it was. Now, that really changes, I think, in the 20th century, when the expectation, particularly around the 20th century, is that marriage is not just about 
um, an economic relationship, a husband being a good provider and a wife being a good manager. Um, but it's about this great emotional fulfillment and, and that people will be the better for being married. Somehow you're part of a partnership that will make you a better person and that will produce children and you'll have a very different sort of companionable life together. Now, once that comes in, the widowhood is seen not just in economic terms, but in emotional terms. And there is that worry about the emotional trauma and much more emphasis on that. And if you look at the way that widows are portrayed now, um, war widows, um, following coffins, for instance, through, uh, you know, when we when they were coming back from um, the Iraq war and things and the, and the Afghanistan war, that was very much about, you know, the loss in emotional terms of their husbands. Um, they didn't wear widow's weeds. They wore quite neat little black dresses, actually, in quite an interesting way, which was sort of conveying that actually emotionally and sexually their life had been curtailed by widowhood, not economically in the way that the first, would have been the first thought to someone in the 19th century. So it's a really different shifting idea of marriage, which puts a different emphasis on what widowhood might mean to, to people. Mm. Well, I found this a really interesting idea in your book that as well as that vulnerability and that kind of end of a sexual life that you just spoke about that might be, um, might, has been attached to widows historically, there was also, there's also this idea that widows actually become sexually voracious and predators and they're freed. And, uh, you know, th this this idea was fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about where that comes from? It is quite interesting. It seems to be there right back in the sort of early, um, well, early modern period onwards, you get in a lot of restoration drama, you get it in some Shakespeare plays and, and, and other plays at the time. It's there in The Wife of Bath in, in Pilgrim's Progress. And there is this sense that once a woman has had sex, she must be sexually voracious in some way or another. <laughs> and, you know, the worst of the sort of narratives about widows and witchcraft conveyed her as, you know, she, she's minus sex, so obviously the devil is the best she can get. Um, so it does become quite quite sort of strange the way it operates. Uh, and it does then operate to sort of um, limit the way any normal person might behave, because there is that sort of caricature sitting in the background, disapproving and, and tut-tutting if they appear to behave in a, in a slightly sexual way. I think that also gets tied up when you hit the 19th century with ideas of deserving and, des and non-deserving poor. The, so the deserving poor is always sexually controlled, <laughs> well-behaved. So the deserving widow that society wants to help is somebody who is not sexually active. Um, and so I think that that fear of the badly behaved widow is, and, the, and the voracious widow from literature is, is sitting there. Um, Interestingly, when you hit the 20th century and the 21st century, some people have turned that on its head and, and enjoyed turning that on its head. So the Hot Young Widows Club, for example, is sort of making a big thing of saying we do not accept these narratives that are out there. We want to turn them on their head, challenge them and say that actually widows have a right to define how they want to live their lives and how they want to behave, not be told by society. These are the expectations on you. You'll be chased. You'll be demure, you'll not be um, having too many relationships. It's an interesting one. Yeah. Yeah. Really fascinating stuff. Um, I, I, taking us back a little bit again to the Victorian era, um, 
I, I wanted to pick up on the fact that you 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 very rightly write about the fact it wasn't uh, just a, a British movement. There weren't just British women who were vi- widows uh, pushing these these kind of progress forward. And I wanted to ask about Pandita Ramabai. That was very very interesting because, as an Indian woman, and and even given that we know that there are certain caricatures and, and stereotypes in there, but as an Indian woman, there were a set of different expectations on her. But she had already defied those expectations, if that makes sense, by marrying somebody who was of a different caste. So she was an independent woman in certain respects, but she was widowed tremendously young. Um, And she sort of takes that on board. and, And both in the education, she comes to Britain, she thinks she's going to train as a doctor, then she does, um, then she does teacher training, and she actually converts to, to to Christianity. And then she goes back to India and she runs these amazing um, homes for women who are widows um, and, and their children and people who need to be educated. Um, and she's actually defying both in terms of, um, I suppose, a set of cultural expectations that they have, religious expectations and gender expectations, and defining her own path. And she becomes very much at the forefront of the the women's movement in terms of what I would say that the women looking after women and fighting for women's rights as opposed to directly women struggling to get the vote, <laughs> which is, is again, what even in places like Australia and New Zealand, you find a lot of widows in the midst of. So she's, she's an absolutely fascinating character, um, really worth, worth exploring more. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so you've talked about the um, the sense that uh, this you you write about it in the introduction, the immeasurable debt that the women's movement in Britain owes mm. to widows, and there's clearly you know a debt in terms of the welfare state, in terms of economic progress mm. as well. Um, so you did talk about it a little bit earlier, but um, I wondered if you could talk more about a sense that coming into the twentieth twenty first century, sorry, um, are some or or if not all popular conceptions of widows. How are they, how have they changed? How are they, how do they compare? It's fascinating. There is this sense as you move to the end of the twentieth century that widows are um, people who have lost out emotionally. There is not the expectation that you're going to get married and men are going to keep you for the rest of the world. Though, having said that, that's very much a a Western perspective. If you look across the world, they reckoned in two thousand and ten of the two hundred and twenty five million people living in poverty, twenty two hundred and twenty five million. Widows, they reckon there were 115 million of them were living in poverty. So across the world, I think widows are still associated with with poverty. But in the Western world, a widowhood is much more about an emotional loss and a sense that um, women, particularly, there is a distinction, I would argue, around age. So there is the, the widow in her 70s is not, which is not necessarily fair, but is not seen in that same way. But the widow who is who is younger, who is in their 30s and their 40s, maybe there is a tragic accident, maybe there is something horrendous like, um, uh, you know, a, a shooting, a killing or what have you that's occurred or a war widow. They are very much seen as, as tragic um, women, as women who have this huge emotional loss um, that has been taken from them by, uh, by some unexpected force. And there is no sense in the 20th, 21st century, I think, that people would expect widowhood 
whereas it was always, sounds terrible, but it was always slightly on the cards in the 19th century. So many marriages would, you know, stop, uh, come to an end because one partner died. Whereas in the 21st century, in the end of the 20th century, that's not the case. So they are seen as tragic figures in many ways. That is something that has been challenged and, you know, fascinatingly challenged. Everything from the wonderful television series of the Durrells um, to, you know, where she has this delightful, wonderful sexual mother who takes all her children off to Corfu and, you know, you long for her to find a suitable partner and she looks as if she's going to get married and then it turns out his inclinations are not that way inclined at all. Um, uh, to, you know, Linda LaPlante's wonderful 1984 series, Widows, where it's a, it's a series of uh, basically gangsters' wives who then set about dealing with their financial problems by doing doing the robbery that their husbands had planned. Um, so I think there has been some interesting challenges in those ways. I think also at the end of the 20th century, spurred on really by the women's movement, a lot of widows began to be, as other people did, other women, other women did, much more vocal about what they wanted. They found their voice, in a sense, whether it was, um, you know, in the early 1980s, women yelling in the midst of the two-minute silence at the cenotaph, you know, what about the widows, which I think is, is the most wonderful shock and horror and being marched off by the police, or it was... Um, you know, widows beginning to set up websites at the end of the 20th into the 21st century where they could actually articulate their views um, and, and portray a wider range of what it might mean to be to be widows. So I think, you know, it's got caught up, in a sense, with the women's movement. In some directions, it's led it, and in some directions, it's um, been influenced by it. Uh, and you get a much wider variety uh, of women's options, I suppose, um, as widows. I think we also shouldn't forget the really interesting widows that you get in the 60s and the 70s who were really instrumental in the women's movement. People like Olive Shapley, um, uh, you know, who were broadcasters and were widowed twice and they absolutely went forward, you know, massively important in things like Women's Hour, running their own career in the 1960s with three young children, um, and just an amazing, uh, I suppose, sort of forefront to how uh, women could live. And also people like uh, my absolute favourite from the whole of the book is Amelia Fleming, the widow of um, obviously Sir Alexander Fleming, the, you know, amazing scientist who discovers penicillin. And she's his second wife. She's obviously much, much younger than him by, by more than 30 years. Uh, but she uses her widowhood. She uses that name very, very well. She's a scientist in her own right, and she's Greek, and she goes back to Greece in the 60s. But when the Greek junta, which was a fairly aggressive regime, to put it mildly, uh, comes into power, she speaks out against them. She opposes their treatment of, of the opposition. And she's finally, you know, imprisoned by them. Um, and uh, put on trial, and she uh, they're so horrified by the publicity she's getting, they boot her out of the country and think that will be the end of her. And it is by no means. She just comes to Britain, she writes a, a book, which is full of the most horrendous details of what the Greek government is doing and the treatment of people, uh, and really publicizes the horror um, of things going on there. And then after the junta goes, she goes back to Greece and becomes an MEP and, you know, very important in Amnesty International. And she's someone who 
uses that name that she has, but uses it not to her own advantage, but actually massively to the, in these humanitarian campaigns and campaigns against oppression in, you know, I was just so impressed by her. Mm-hmm. Yes, completely. And there's just so many other inspirational women to be found in this book. Um, I'm glad to have touched on a few of them today. And, and thanks so much, Maggie, for your time and talking to us. You're very welcome. That was Maggie Andrews. Widows, Poverty, Power and Politics is published by The History Press and is available now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow when Seb Falk will be speaking about the extraordinary world of medieval science. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.